Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. For some reason, we never think about the intellectual balance of trade. And in that intellectual balance of trade, we are way ahead. There are more foreign students coming to the U.S., and the largest group are the Chinese. They are extremely talented. Eric Rosenblum is a managing partner at Singyuan Ventures, an early-stage U.S. fund of $51 million focused on science startups founded by the Chinese tech diaspora in the U.S. Eric is a Harvard and MIT graduate and ex-BCG consultant who spent 14 years in China and was one of the rare foreign co-founders of multiple tech startups, leading to two trade sales coming back to the States. He then worked at Google and Palantir before co-founding Tsingyuan. In this episode, we reminisce about the early days of China's tech scene on the waves of Chinese talent in the US, particularly with the many applications of AI at scale. We discuss the role of non-state actors like Google, Baidu, or Alibaba as talent factories and touch upon some of China's advances with regulation, local support, and public acceptance of technology. Finally, we attempt to use analogies with basketball and ping pong to compare the impact of outstanding talent and the risks of making the talent trade balance less favorable to America. Eric, pleasure to have you today. Thank you, Ben. I think we met back in Beijing in 2005. It's crazy that it's been 15 years. And it's also crazy to think about how much China's changed. Of course, we haven't changed at all, but... <laughs> <laughs> of course. I remember at the time in China, that was probably the second wave of internet companies. And you were one of the very few foreign co-founders of a tech company. And the only place where we could actually meet the who's who of Chinese tech was in those conferences organized by investment banks that were basically trying to get everybody to IPU in the US. Yeah, it was a very different scene. And of course, you know, as you know, that first wave and second wave had quite a few people returning from the States. Uh, they were going to school in the States. And so people like Charles Zhang, the team from Sina, Xiaoyi Bo from Ichnet, etc., all came back to China. And there were a few foreigners that also had access to capital that were able to start their businesses. And the scene today is totally different. It's mostly locally grown Chinese talent, local Chinese money. But yeah, at the time, it was foreign investment banks sponsoring conferences with a lot of attorneys and foreigners. And now it's completely different. It's really interesting to have gone through those different waves. You went back to the US in 2007. I was in Beijing until 2010-ish. And then I did different things and then came back to Shenzhen with Hacks 2013. And now in Europe, US, Asia for the past two years, roughly. Uh, but yeah, a lot has changed. So to get started, if you can tell us about your background, how you came to China, how you came out of China, and what you're doing now. Yeah, and actually, I will combine the introduction of my background with the introduction of Qingyuan, because the two things do go together fairly nicely. And I feel very fortunate that I found a way to combine a bunch of things from my past in my current role. So I'm from the States. I was fortunate enough that when I graduated college in 1992, uh, I went to Harvard. I had an opportunity to go to China for what I thought was just a year. Uh, so I thought I'd study in China for a year and I would come back to the States and enroll in a PhD program. But I ended up feeling if I went back to the States in 1992, given everything that was happening in China, I would always regret it. That this felt like a historic time and that I had a chance to be there for the kind of the ground floor of China's rise. So I ended up being being one of the first associates for Boston Consulting Group in uh, Shanghai. So BCG set up its office in Shanghai in 1992. I came in as one of the first class of associates. Uh, and then in 
And that set a path. I was an associate there in Hong Kong. They sent me back to MIT for business school. So I came back. And I knew I wanted to start a company. And as you know, Ben, one of the things in China that's, I think, remarkable is, especially in those days, everyone's thinking about starting a company. And in the States with your friends, my story I always give is if you go out to dinner and you really like it, in the States, people say, we should come here more often. In China, people say, we should start a restaurant just like this one. <laughs> it was just different. We always think about starting companies. So I started my first company called China Now, which is a small media company. It did okay. It had some users, got sold for a very small amount of money, but it, it whetted my appetite to do bigger things. And so I met up with a group of founders that were working on a company called Linktone, a company called Intrinsic, a company called SmartPay. And so the three companies together were working on mobile media and data very early. So this is the year 2000. Linktone was doing mobile content. Intrinsic was doing the middleware to allow the content to be hosted and discovered, and SmartPay was the payment system. And I was the CEO of SmartPay, but the three companies were all intertwined with each other. They all went different directions. LinkedIn went public on NASDAQ. SmartPay kept growing, kept growing, kept growing, and eventually got bought by Ping'an Group. Intrinsic, which we all thought was the crown jewel, actually ended up going bust, partially because China Mobile developed their own alternative platform and kicked us out. So anyway, we got all the different results of bankruptcy, NASDAQ listing, trade sales. So we kind of saw the entire spectrum of results. Long story short on this, uh, when I arrived in China, I came with a backpack. By the time I was running SmartPay, I had two kids. My wife had followed me out. She was my college girlfriend and she got a job in China as well. And so very different lifestyle. Eventually the grandparents really wanted to see their grandkids back in the States. So we moved back and I was fortunate enough to get a job at Google. I'm skipping over just a little bit. And while I was at Google, I managed to be running a product group where one of my top engineers was from Tsinghua University in China. And this is what brings me to Qingyuan. Like I said, I graduated Harvard 1992. My partners all graduated Tsinghua in 1992. But whereas I flew out to China, they flew to the States with their PhDs, started to build careers, and they built a networking association called the Tsinghua Entrepreneur and Executive Club, TIC. And it became a very powerful group for Chinese engineers living in the U.S. originally. And it included the founders of NetScreen and Fortinet, so Deng Feng and Ken Xie, people like Raymond Yang, who is actually from LinkedIn, was one of the founders of this. And the group became very successful. And in 2010, they built a very small fund called Teak Angel Fund. And at the time, they were really investing, again, in people like themselves. And that fortunately meant that they were the first backers of Zoom Video. So Eric Yuan, like themselves, was an engineer who had come over from China. They believed in what he was doing and they put in $250,000 back in 2011. And in addition to that, you know, they subsequently were the first money into Quantergy, which is solid state LIDAR, companies like Ginkgo Bioworks, uh, Synthetic Biology, etc. And so long story short on that, they had an incredible run of success, often betting on these immigrant founders, very technical in the US. And the fund, you know, just kept growing. And then three years ago, a subset of the partners of the fund, after there were three funds, Teak Angel Fund 1, 2, and 3, formed a new fund called Qingyuan Ventures. We're a U.S. fund, which essentially is taking the same approach, but slightly larger, still betting on a lot of very technical founders, often that are able to navigate the U.S. and China effectively. But we're not limited to that. That's just kind of our differentiation and our core. But we tend to invest in fairly technical enterprises very, very early. 
So as I said at the beginning, I feel very fortunate that now I've been able to combine a bunch of things in my past, China plus the US, strategy, entrepreneurship, technology. Uh, and I feel like a lot of these things, I feel very fortunate that's come together in my work now at Qingyuan. Some dots are not necessarily easy to connect. That's right. And maybe also for people who are not familiar with Tsinghua, probably would be fair to say that this is kind of the Harvard plus MIT of China. Yeah, it's almost hard because it's more than just the MIT. Uh, it also has all the political leaders are coming through Tsinghua. It's such a centralized system in China that if you're really the top engineer, you go to Tsinghua, full stop. In the US, you might go to Stanford, you might go to Caltech, you might go to MIT. If you want to be a top government official, maybe you study at the K school at Harvard. In China, you go to Tsinghua and that's different. Uh, it's such a centralized, powerful group of alums that it's beyond what many other countries have. What you describe of the network that the initial founders of your fund have built sounds a lot like what I've seen with uh, Indian tech networks also in the US. Yes, the Chinese entrepreneurs in the U.S. spent a lot of time thinking about the Indian entrepreneurs in the U.S. to say, well, how did they get this right? <laughs> they've done so well. They're now running Microsoft at Google. And, you know, what did we do wrong? <laughs> There's a lot of thought given to that topic. I would think, and that's a very quick thought, that it's not that they did anything wrong. It's more that the Indians had a head start and also a shoe in because of all the outsourcing, all the training and the facilitation due to the language and political proximity. It's possible. It's, it's a great topic, though. And it's something that if you meet with top Chinese engineering talent in the US, they could talk for hours about this topic. <laughs> Since here our topic will be a lot about uh, this Chinese tech diaspora and about Chinese deep tech, to get started, it would be interesting to discuss a bit about the relative importance of the Chinese diaspora in US, in uh, academia, in research, in tech companies, and maybe go through a few examples. Yeah. So I think this is a fascinating topic. I'll give a little bit of background. When I joined Qingyuan, one of my projects was to go through all of the old Teak Angel Fund investments and understand why we were successful at some and unsuccessful at others. And as you might expect, we seemed to be more successful when we were betting on this group that we knew really well. So this Chinese diaspora in the US uh, accounted for a very large proportion of our home runs. The question was, how big is this group? Is this actually a strategy or is this just a coincidence because we know them? Is it a big enough group and a successful enough group for us to spend a lot of time trying to systematically really source and build connections and channels? And so I learned a lot of things that I, I didn't expect. I'll just give a couple statistics to set this up. The first is that the scale and the composition of U.S. PhD program has changed a lot in the last 30 years. Uh, so if you look at the mid 80s and then you look at today, the number of PhDs overall has almost tripled in science and technology. So, you know, even though we always talk about the U.S. not producing enough engineers compared to other places in the world, we have tripled the number of slots at top universities. And the proportion of non-U.S. citizens has risen during that same time from about a quarter to 40%. And that's capped. If it were uncapped, the number of foreign students would be far higher. But we've kept it about 40%. So you have first triple the number of engineers and the proportion rising from 25% to 40%. And then over that same period, the composition of foreigners changed a lot. So again, if you go back to 1986... The number of Chinese was tiny. There were like 400 Chinese students in science and technology PhD program in the U.S. There were double the number from Taiwan. There were more from India, more from Korea, more from many other countries. 
If you look 20 years later, uh, so this statistic is now from 2007, China is by far the largest of all the countries. Taiwan has shrunk a little bit, actually. China has almost 5,000 students, and it's almost a fifth of all of the U.S. PhD students in science and technology. And so it's a shocking number. Not only that, it's a high quality group. Um, so if you look at number of papers published, the number of co-authorships, the number of patents filed, they hit above their weight. And it's because it's so competitive. So anyway, long story short, we've begun to produce a lot more PhDs over time. There are more foreign students coming to the U.S. And the largest group of that group are the Chinese. And they are extremely talented. And historically, there's already been a number of successes from uh, the Chinese diaspora, and that would include uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, maybe Singapore, coming to the U.S. for training and starting companies either in the U.S. or back home. Yeah, this is also quite interesting, because if you look at the trend and then you assume people come to the States for school and it takes them five years to get their Ph.D. and they work for a few years and they start a company, you're looking at a lag effect of maybe 10 years or more to start to see these people come out and really make an impact. And so if you look at the earliest Chinese founded companies, so 1980s, 1990s, almost 100% of them are from Taiwan and Hong Kong. So that group includes Trend Micro, BEA, Cynix, ViewSonic, Microchip, Kingston, NVIDIA, Garmin, Vizio, Linksys. These are famous names and they're almost all hardware companies. They make routers, they make flat panel displays, they make microchips. The semiconductor guys. That's right, all the semiconductor guys. The Chinese immigrants are old, and they actually came even before the PRC existed. So like Wang Labs, Computer Associates. They did come from the mainland, but they came before 49. And they came and got their PhDs, uh, but they were essentially from the Republic of China still. And so what's interesting is in that period, you don't have any mainland businesses. And then suddenly there's a change that occurs around 2000. You suddenly have WebEx, and then that is important because you have Juming, who then brought over a young Eric Yuan uh, to be his uh, head of engineering from China, who founded Zoom. But in between, you have NetScreen and Fortinet, which, of course, I mentioned the founders were a big part of this Teak network. You have Palo Alto Networks has a co-founder. And again, many of these were co-founded with Israelis and Indians. And so they were quite multicultural companies at the top level. Aerohive Networks, even Credit Karma, who was a young immigrant from Beijing. And at that point, the number of companies from Taiwan and Hong Kong are very few. And almost all of them are second generation or very young immigrants like Jerry Yang from Yahoo or the founder of Guitar Hero or Steve Chen from YouTube. They came over as children from Taiwan. You no longer have the Taiwanese PhD students founding companies. And then you go forward even one more step to today and you find zero Hong Kong or Taiwan founded U.S. successful companies. But from the mainland side, there are a lot and they're concentrated in things like AI for autonomous driving, for mapping. So essentially AI applications. So in that group, you have Neuro with last mile delivery, Quantergy with solid state LIDAR, Deep Map, deep learning for high definition maps, Roadstar, Otter.ai for transcription, Too Simple for self-driving trucks, We Ride, self-driving cars, Covariant for robots, for pick and pack sorting robots, Plus.ai in trucking, Pony.ai in cars, etc. So it was a huge explosion of this group of mainland immigrants in the States starting highly successful AI-centric companies. 
And so that is quite notable in terms of the lag. So the question is, are we seeing the crest of this wave or are we still on the upswing of the wave? And again, if you use the theory that there's a lag, our theory is we're just seeing the upswing. Another thing you mentioned earlier was the fact that some of those founders got their first experience in another company. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the, the non-state actors, so in particular, Google, Alibaba, Baidu, etc., are becoming very important as talent factories. And this is where people are meeting their co-founders. This is where they get the credibility to raise the money. And so you have people like Jia Junju from Neuro, who came out of Google, and James Wu, who was at Google and Apple Maps, and also Baidu. James Pung uh, came from both Google and Baidu. He's Pony.ai. Tony Han from WeRide, you know, very similar pattern. Uh, Roadstar. So all of these, and there's there's a reason why all of the Chinese self-driving car companies that are vying to be the Waymo of China, they're all based in Sunnyvale. And it's because they all came out of Andrew Ng's Baidu lab. He fostered an incredible group of talent. And many of them came through Google. And so as a result, from an American, quote unquote, patriot standpoint, we have swept up a lot of the global talent and their children are going to Cupertino High School and Gun High, and they are here, and they're building their lives here. Their kids are building their lives here, and the important parts and the crown jewels of these companies are being developed here. But it's because the talent factories that were assembled here by Google and even Baidu and by you know Amazon and others. So you can see this now pretty easily. So maybe that's something that's not really uh, always uh, considered well at the policy level is that talent are not all created equal. You have those kind of 100x engineers or researchers that are hyper productive. I just finished watching the documentary about the Chicago Bulls, the, the Last Dance on Netflix, where they also show that you know, you need to find the best talent, you need to groom it, you need to make them work at the team. And I can see a lot of similarities with what's happening in tech. Michael Jordan was probably like the 100x contributor to his team, but alone is not enough. And without the grooming and the nurturing environment, it probably wouldn't have thrived. I think that's a great analogy. And I'd say in tech, it's even more extreme in the sense that, you know, in sports, a great system beats a bunch of individual contributors. In tech, a great system and a great platform also beats a bunch of individually brilliant scientists, but it's even more extreme because those individual contributors, the legacy of what they contribute lasts far past their careers. They build code that others build upon. And so it's as if the legacy of Michael Jordan is still helping the Bulls today, which it does in a certain sense. Not in championships. <laughs> yes. And so the legacy of great engineers lasts well beyond their you know, initial contributions, number one. Number two, you know, because of the scalability of tech, the impact of a top 1% or top 0.1% or top 0.01% goes well beyond you know, a Michael Jordan who's you know, a couple standard deviations from the mean of professional basketball players. And so he's extraordinary. But you have people that are so extreme in their impact because of the global nature of technology that having a top 0.1% person is so impactful. And that's why, you know, Google and Amazon and Baidu and others scramble so hard for this global talent and why people might say, and I know it's kind of previewing a conversation that you might want to have, which is what if we have fewer of these Chinese great PhD students come in? Wouldn't there be people from India or Israel or others that take their place? 
And the answer to that is yes, of course. There's tons of people, and including American-born engineers. The difference is that if you have in the market of talent, the ability to have the number one draft pick and the number two draft pick and the number three draft pick at Berkeley or MIT or Caltech or others, and now half those draft picks are choosing to go to Cambridge or Oxford or McGill or UT, University of Toronto, it turns out the number five is considerably less talented than number four. And number four is considerably less talented than number three. So in this draft, the order that you pick is so important that yes, if you remove a number of people from that draft, you'll still have others. The draft is very deep, but the difference in quality is very high. This inflow of talent is actually a huge asset for the U.S., on top of that, if you want to actually address the Chinese market, you were one of the few foreign operators in China and you saw how difficult it was even at a time where it was much less competitive because there were much less entrepreneurs. But today, you'd be hard-pressed to find you know, even half a dozen successful foreigners building tech companies in China or expanding from outside to China. I think that that's natural. The U.S. is totally different from China, where the riddle of how the U.S. consistently ranks you know, number 30 or whatever we rank in, in high school math competitions and yet lead the world in high-tech innovation, the answer to that riddle is that we import a lot of our talent. And so after college, we import some of the best and brightest from all over the world, and many of them stay and help build our great companies. And of course, you know, the top tier of U.S. mines is also exceptionally good. And so it's a great melting pot for that. In China, many of the foreign students are there to learn Chinese. They're not there because they're the best and brightest physicists or material scientists of their country and are now in China studying. And so naturally, the talent pool is much, much, much deeper on the native homegrown Chinese talent side. And so just based on the numbers, it makes sense that there's no real room for a foreign startup to get going. I do think that a well-run foreign company will eventually have a huge impact in China. You know, when Google pulled out, I was quite sad about that. In fact, Google had really turned the corner in terms of size and profitability. Uh, the management of Google was, was exceptionally good. You know, Kai-Fu Lee is an exceptional leader and engineer. Uh, Jared Smith, who is running product at Google, is also one of the best. He's now CEO of Qualtrics, also exceptionally good. And they had really begun to be a real competitor when the decision was made to pull out for other reasons. And that, I think, is a whole other topic. But anyway, to address that, yes, the Chinese market now is Chinese dominated. The U.S. market is U.S. company dominated, but those companies are very multinational. I agree. And I hope that we'll see uh, more and more foreign companies crack at the China market. And it's obviously easier with technologies that cannot be considered as media, let's say. When it's purely a technological play, I think it's a lot easier. On that topic, actually, this might be the next wave, which is uh, we just mentioned a group of, say, 15 American companies who have Chinese founders that are very technical. So what is the chance that DeepMap becomes the mapping solution for the world? It's very high. What is the chance that WeRide or Plus.ai becomes the top self-driving car company and self-driving truck company of China? It's extremely high. Right now, they're the leaders, but they're based in the U.S. So the opportunity that the U.S. companies actually become the leading company in China, it's happening right now. But in sometimes we don't notice it because the founders themselves were born in China, but their companies were built in the U.S. They're employing Americans. You know, the chance that Zoom becomes the leading Chinese video conferencing system, it's there. And this is a U.S. company. So I think that we might be seeing something different, but it's very early. And so it's hard to say, but I think it's quite exciting. 
maybe we're early in the curve. And the other thing is that with anything very technical, deep tech related, those solutions tend to be B2B and get a lot less media attention than B2C solutions. That's right. In fact, even Zoom until the pandemic was mostly a business solution. And now, you know, every yoga teacher is using it. That's right. And, you know, going back, you mentioned kind of the difference between the Chinese tech scene versus the U.S. tech scene and that these things are quite separate and different. And that's true. But there's one topic that I think is quite interesting, and I have learned it from Kai Fu Lee. And I, you know, just to plug his book, AI Superpowers, I think is a fantastic book. Uh, and it really influenced my thinking on a lot of issues. One of his core theses is that true deep tech innovation happens very rarely. And it happens with only a few people. And the people that he brings up in the book are this very small number of AI pioneers like Jeffrey Hinton and Yashua Bengio and Yen LeCun. And, you know, just to stroke your ego a little bit, a highly French influenced group of people who made their careers at University of Toronto, University of Montreal, NYU, and, you know, then went on to work at Facebook and Google and found Element.ai. So you have this small group of people that make huge breakthroughs and everybody else is just applying what their breakthrough was. And his point is that China is amazing on the application side, that the speed of rollout, the scale of rollout is far beyond what we see in the U.S. and Canada. But the U.S. and Canada so far has had some of the fundamental breakthroughs. Even if many of their postdocs and grad students are actually from China or from Israel or from India, they're having their breakthroughs while sitting at University of Toronto or McGill or University of Montreal or NYU, Berkeley, Stanford, etc. And that's very important because it means that the two countries are actually quite complementary. The two markets can be quite complementary in their approaches. It's not really a head-to-head competition. There's a lot of areas where there's now cross-border cooperation. And, you know, frankly, a lot of these people know each other. You know, they work together at Google or Facebook or even Baidu, or they studied together at Berkeley and they co-authored papers together. So that world is less fragmented than you might think. You know, these researchers know each other quite well. You said China is fantastic at application of breakthrough and scaling speed. Why is that? From a distance, it might look like it's all because it's kind of government-driven, very top-down. But is that your understanding? So China, it's a different kind of place. Clearly, there's a strong central government and there's also local governments, but it's incredibly entrepreneurial, even at the government level, and incredibly, in some ways, multifaceted. And so if you are doing a company in self-driving cars, is a perfect example, you will be able to find a municipality that will work with you on the regulatory framework that will help you on the investment side, the cooperation side. And so you have a company like WeRide that now has 100 taxis operating in Guangzhou, and they keep increasing. And meanwhile, Google, which is doing the same thing in Arizona, you has a very small test fleet they've been running for several years for WeRide to go from zero to 100 taxis almost overnight is unprecedented. But not only do you have a cooperative municipality, so the mayor on down is very encouraging, but you also have a populace that really believes in technical innovation. People believe that this is the way forward and are quite happy. So you see surveys of Chinese versus Americans and how much do you trust self-driving technologies. And Chinese are off the map saying, oh, we think this is safer. Uh, and part of it is because actually the, the road safety in China is terrible. So part of it's not for a good reason. But part of it is that there is an optimism about technology in 
general versus in the US, there's often a suspicion of technology. And so you have a combination of both the regulatory environment, local support, and then the public acceptance of large scale new technical innovations. But we see this across our portfolio. So not just self-driving, we see it for, you know, MRI and PET scan imaging. So AI applied to medical imaging. We see it in AI applied to 3D printed medical implants. We see it across a huge variety of verticals. And so this playbook kind of repeats itself where breakthroughs can happen in the US. You can get up quickly to trials or to large scale data collection in China. And then that improves your product so that back in the States, you can successfully deploy in the much longer sales cycle that you have to go through in the US. Also, it's good to remind people of the scale of those municipalities. Like we're not talking about a small suburb town, but uh, we're talking about cities of millions of people and provinces that can reach the size of a average European country. Yes. Originally, We Ride was actually a debut in a city called Anqing, which is in Anhui. And, you know, I lived in China for almost 14 years. I've never heard of Anqing and almost nobody has outside of China. So I looked it up. It's a city of 5 million people. So the US, that would be our fourth largest city. It's something that just blows your mind that there's so many highly concentrated large places where you can run these kinds of experiments. And they were very excited Anqing too. And they're still working with the city of Anqing who wants to be forward leaning on self-driving and good for them. They want to become a technical leader. We've seen some of that in our own hardware accelerator program, uh, Hacks, based in Shenzhen. The Shenzhen municipality is very forward-thinking. And uh, of course, it was a special region, so it also fostered that. But it's no surprise that you see companies like the drone company DJI, the Beijing Genomics Institute. No surprise they're based there and they keep attracting a lot of talent, not only for the technical jobs, but also for the living standards, kind of the California of China. Yeah, absolutely. So these tight partnership municipalities can be incredibly valuable to a startup. They're large enough. Oftentimes, you know, not all local governments are forward thinking, but enough are that you can find a good partner. And so it is a very helpful thing. To kind of wrap up the topic of uh, deep tech and China, and I know your focus is more about this cross-border talent. What are the sectors in which China seems to be very advanced and maybe kind of ahead in deep tech? Again, I'm going to borrow a little bit from Kai-Fu's book, and he has a whole section on this. So the obvious examples are first payments. China leapfrogged advanced payments, and now mobile payments are ubiquitous. But it's not just mobile. It's because when you're using mobile payments, the payment processor understands your location. They understand context. So it's a much richer data set than you get from a credit card payment. As a result, they can do all kinds of really interesting analytics on patterns of consumption, patterns of movement. So they're well ahead in terms of understanding purchase intent and what drives purchase intent and closing the loop on advertising, for example. They're well ahead in mobility. So the scale of things like DD versus Uber, things like micro mobility, so bike shares, uh, so the whole sharing economy is many times the size of what you have in the US. And same thing, you know, again, he has a line that in AI, the only thing better than data is more data. The real driving factor and advantage is just having access to more data. And China, they have 10x, 100x the amount of data in payments and mobility. And so those are two areas that, you know, China is well ahead. 
And then there's places where they've always been ahead around like massive deployment of chat clients and super apps and sort of understanding the comprehensibility of everyone's behavior as viewed through WeChat is, again, quite powerful. So uh, there are a number of areas where the scale is overwhelming compared to the U.S. If I might add on to that from our own experience of investing in China, we see also a huge growth in number of innovative robotics companies from industrial robotics to service robotics and all sorts of application of computer vision. Yes, I think what we hear about overseas from China's application is around like surveillance, policing, and social credit score. We're kind of missing on the bigger picture, which is the development of technology solutions that bring a lot of convenience, a lot of speed, and a lot of information in this ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, computer vision is a great example. Like clearly there's some use cases that are very concerning from a privacy civil liberties standpoint, but there's a lot of use cases. And so in our own portfolio, we have computer vision applied to MRIs and PET scans applied to building operations. But in China, this is now ubiquitous. Manufacturing operations, quality control, the number of computer vision scientists in China far outstrips the US, even though again, the US is leading in many areas of this, but the scale of China is just just tremendous. And the pace of experimentation is also quite dramatic. I'd like to also talk about the broader picture of this uh, battle for brains, capital, and the influence of politics around that. We hear about trade tensions, ciphers. Is this a win-lose game? Is this zero-sum? Or is this a lose-lose game? I personally think the road we're going down is lose-lose. I think it's bad for everybody. I think that the US-China relationship has been quite wondrous for both sides. Uh, in China, obviously, you know, the, the pulling of 900 million people out of poverty is a tremendous achievement. In the U.S., the fact that we have become the home of the best and brightest of everybody, including Chinese, has led to our technical leadership and maintain the technical leadership for a long time. And so this symbiotic relationship between the countries, I also think is important for just stability and world peace, which is, you know, it sounds like a pageant contest answer, but is the most valuable thing we can have for the world. On the other hand, I think there's real problems. So I do think there's an issue of IP theft, a real issue that has to be addressed. I think that there is a issue around civil liberties, human rights that has to be addressed in China. So a lot of things need to be taken head on. But again, I think that, you know, the analogy is, uh, you know, we need the right tool for the job and it has to be surgical. And right now what we're doing are kind of the nuclear options by kind of demonizing China and attacking on all fronts. I do think it's destructive because I think it hits at the U.S.'s source of strength which is that we have become the home for the strivers of the world. Uh, so immigrants of all stripes who are trying to make a better life for themselves. But in this case, a huge influx of the best physicists, the best material scientists, the best mathematicians. And in exchange, we've been sending them our language students. And that, you know, and when we think about capital trades and do we have a trade deficit with China, for some reason, we never think about the intellectual balance of trade. And in that intellectual balance of trade, we are way ahead. And in the information economy, which we're currently living in, that matters more than, you know, who is importing whose steel, in my opinion, because I don't know about everybody else's portfolio, but I'm much longer in my portfolio on technology versus coal or steel. And so for us, for decades, to harness the best and the brightest in our universities who then go on to raise their families in our communities has been a tremendous advantage. So at any rate, I, I believe that that is a losing proposition for the U.S. and is also very bad for China. 
On the other hand, I do feel like our government for a long time has neglected to have effective responses to IP protection and to human rights in China. And I think that that has been to our detriment and to China's detriment. I think what I would take away from what you said is that basically the way forward for winning is winning together. And the way to win in China as well is with Chinese who come to the US and help the US understand. I think that's a big part of it. And something I should have made clear in the beginning is that Qingyuan is a US firm. So we're US citizens, US partners registered in Delaware. And so in a really perverse way, what happened in the last couple of years with CFIUS and Firma, which has made it far more difficult for Chinese to invest in the US, has helped us because we understand and are quite well connected in this Chinese diaspora community, but we're American. And, you know, that kind of dovetails with this thesis that it's these kinds of entities that can compete effectively with China. So as, as an American, and it's like the American Olympic ping pong team or the Canadian Olympic ping pong team. Every Olympic ping pong team in the world are all from China. Um, and they all got citizenship and they now are winning medals for their countries. But the countries that are going to take on China and these things will have a lot of people that emigrate from China and are helping on the investment side, helping on the technical development side. But, you know, we, in a perverse way, were helped by these regulations, even though, you know, I think it's destructive somewhat. Uh, from a policy standpoint, it's been helpful for our firm because we're able to operate with this degree of protectionism around us. Less competition into your deals, more visibility toward your target demographic. That's correct. I guess it possibly complicates some of the co-investments or later follow-on rounds. Maybe at that time, the companies already have metrics that are convincing for any investor who will look at them. That's right. That, that's exactly right. All right. Well, that was uh, most enlightening. Thanks, Eric, for bringing your cross-border perspective to this China-US tech investment on deep tech topic. Wish you the best moving forward and looking forward to future co-investments. Benjamin, thank you so much for the time. And yes, we'd love to co-invest. So let's find some stuff to do together. Thanks for listening. To know more about Xingyuan, check out their website and Medium post on the Chinese tech diaspora on the value of cross-domain science investments. Subscribe now for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and at SOSV, or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet.